We're all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. Yeah. Hello, Church for 15 years. 
and a blessed service pastor of that congregation that recalls, of course, the name of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, so for us, voting is not just a civic duty, it's a sacred obligation and responsibility. Because when you think about it, your, your vote is really your voice. And voice is about human dignity, this basic idea that all of us are children of God. And so when people engage in voter suppression, uh, they are violating this idea that everybody is a treasure, that everybody is a gift, and everybody ought to have a voice. I think democracy for all of its challenges uh, is the political expression of that theological idea uh, that, that all of God's children have value and ought to have a voice. And so that's why I work so hard around voting rights. Stacey Abrams and I have been working together for years when she started the New Georgia Project. She came to me and said, hey, I'm about to get into some good trouble. John Lewis, John Lewis is a member of my congregation that has uh, deep down into officiating service. And so, you know, she knows I'm always down for a good fight. And uh, later I became the chair of the board who registered 400,000 voters in the state. And so when you see Georgia changing, it's not bad, it's hard. Uh, over about a decade, we've been working at this. And uh, again, as you point out, yeah, it, all of this comes from my faith. It is, it is the faith that uh, was shaped by an enslaved people in the Brush Harbor of Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, after the official church meeting was over, when they were told slaves to obey their masses, they had another church meeting. Uh, where they preached a whole different kind of gospel. It was the gospel of liberation. And so Martin King Jr. himself, he doesn't spring out of nowhere, exceeding low out of nothing. He's part of a grand tradition of faith shaped by suffering, moral audacity that transcends human station. And he is a part of that tradition. So the voting rights law was passed in 1965 as a result of Dr. King's activism. What most people don't know is that Dr. King's father, Daddy King, the third pastor of our church, led a voting rights campaign in Atlanta in 1935. Wow. So 30 years before the voting rights law, 1935, Daddy King pushed for voting rights. Voting rights law passed in 1965. And so as I then take this walk, to run for the United States Senate, I see it as part of that continuing tradition. Uh, so speaking of continuing tradition, um, there was a shift after that 30-year mark. We saw um, black folks kind of flocking to the Democratic Party. Um, there are a lot of us sir, who are starting to feel a little homeless. And I'm saying that because I think what we know is that there is um, no real place where we can have all of our agenda items and needs met. However, um, we've seen uh, people with the latest uh, version of this is Lil Wayne yesterday on Twitter posing with Donald Trump embracing the uh, nothing that is called the black And so I'm just curious to know, like as a black man who is running for office, as a Democrat, who knows what your tradition um, has been in your labor, to the point you just raised. Um, 
to ensure that black people's voices and votes are heard and that they matter. How does it make you feel to see someone um, like Little Wayne, maybe trying to address the fact that you don't feel like all of our needs are met in one particular bucket, but the way that you went about it undermines, in a lot of ways, the very race you're working. How does it make you feel to see something like that? Well, I don't get my politics from Little Wayne, but... Neither do I. and paying attention to certainly. Uh, I don't know, as I saw him standing there next to Donald Trump, I thought about the Central Park Five. Because these are young men that I've got to know, at least a few of them. And we honored them last year at my church. Uh, we organized at Ebenezer last year a national conference. It was multiracial, multi-faith, folks who claim no faith tradition at all focused on ending mass incarceration in America. And uh, we honored the Central Park Five, and three of them were able to make it. And so I've met with these brothers, I've heard their stories, I've sat with them as a pastor to hear what they've been through. And the man that Wakes stood next to yesterday took out a full page article in the New York Times, among other people. Yeah, three, three full page ads. They said that they needed to be executed. Yeah. These were teenagers at the time. <clears throat> they were innocent. And now that the world knows that they're innocent, Donald Trump has yet to apologize uh, to these young men. And so if you're concerned about prison industrial complex, if you're concerned about the ways in which this has happened over the last 40 years, I'm certainly concerned about it. I've been working on it for years. And yeah, there was participation on both sides of the aisle, but I don't know what you get from standing next to someone who's completely unrepentant, doubles down, uh, and uh, I'm not sure what you get. Yeah, you're absolutely right. No, no place gets you everything you get, but why would you go over there? Yeah. When you uh, think about your role, um, you know, that we, the voice talked about the dual consciousness double consciousness. When you go to the United States Senate, you will be representing at least two constituencies, arguably maybe But you have you'll have Georgia and then you will have Black America. Because there are just not enough um, black senators. When you think about what your obligations are to the community, what are some of the things that you want to ensure that you address immediately um, as a city senator? Yeah, as I, I go to the United States Senate, and as I moved all across Georgia, uh, Georgia was a concern about their health care. Now, that's an example of an issue that impacts all of us, all Georgians. But for a whole range of reasons, it disproportionately impacts people of color. So when we strengthen the Affordable Care Act, rather than try to dismantle it, uh, and extend protections. We're going to help black people. Um, we are disproportionately represented among the frontline workers. And because there's so many of us who have these comorbidities, I was talking to a friend earlier today about a friend who's pretty young, and, you know, the, the rates of hypertension, diabetes, strokes. All of these things, as we witness the emergence of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, 
we see these long-standing issues of disparities in healthcare. So I'm very focused on healthcare because I know how uh, important and urgent it is in our community. But then we need living wage, and we need jobs, and we need opportunities. We're sitting here in the gathering spot, you know, brilliant young brothers who have created this. Every time I see Brian, I just want to congratulate him. I'm so proud, you know, I don't want to sound patronizing. You know, he's not that much of <laughs> But uh, he's done an amazing thing here. And so we need the small business administration and all the instruments of government to make sure that we're intentional about helping uh, marginalized communities uh, to live into their full possibility. And when we do that, we help the whole thing. And when you were thinking about running for office, was there a tipping point moment? Was there something that made you say, I absolutely have to do this, I have to engage in other ways beyond grassroots activism and pastoring um, and being just a voter and not to marginalize the importance of the voter, but what made you want to actually run for office? Yes, you know, I've spent my whole life focused on service. And the work I've done at the Negro Church over the last 15 years, much of it has always been beyond the church goals. And so, you know, a few months after I got to Ebenezer, I was taking Katrina and Dr. B back to New Orleans just so they could exercise the way to You know, I've stood up on a number of cases uh, to deal with criminal justice reform, to deal with voting rights. And folks have been asking me to run for years. And I think when people see someone engaged, you know, it's quite natural you think about right. I was doing the work because I thought it was important. I wasn't seeking any office. Uh, but I think uh, it just feels like this is the time. Certainly, Donald Trump, for the last four years, uh, provides a very different context. I came very close to running in 2016. And uh, as it turned out, we ended up with Donald Trump as president. And I think that is such an urgent moment that we need everybody to use whatever platform they have, whatever gifts they have. And in this defining moment in America, I feel like we have to say no to the opportunity to lead in this way. With people calling and asking for the moral leadership at the grassroots level, ordinary folks coming up saying, Reverend, we think you'd be great. Consider doing this. When I, when I think about the struggles of our people, when I think about people like John Lewis, who I knew when was his pastor, he was my mentor, who am I to say no in this defining moment in our country? Because I think that behind the public policy arguments is a more basic question about what kind of country do we want to be. There comes these moments in American history that where we have to renew and reclaim our commitment to the high ideals of the country. Equal protection under the law, certain inalienable rights, as Jefferson put it, among the life of the two habits. We know that that's a complicated story. He said it, but he didn't mean it in the way that unfolded it up, right? <laughs> but they put it on paper. Yeah. And that's the great thing about America. It's, it's written in the charter documents, and the story of our movements the abolitionist movement, the movement of women for the right to vote, the movement of people with disabilities for the American Disabilities Act, 
the movement of members of the LGBTQ plus community. The story of America is, is the, the effort to perfect the union. And I think this is one of those defining moments. We have a very basic question before us. We want to become a more fearful, hateful community where everybody's armed to the T and afraid of their neighbor. And some people at the top have way more than they could ever need. And a whole lot of people are suffering. There aren't enough gates and guns to make you feel safe in a world like that. We have to build a beloved community. Speaking of guns, there's been a lot of conversation about civil war, civil unrest, violence on election day in Trump supporters, for example, don't get the results they want. How concerned about about that? It's a frequent conversation. I'm honest, being very, very honest, probably too honest for y'all. Um, too many of my texts, my friends, like legitimately worried about this. Are these conversations that you're also having? And if so, how do you help to lift us out of that? I'm calling on your pastoral skills to give us some different inspiration. Well, it's, it's a tennis ball. Yeah. And um, it's certainly a hyper-partisan moment. I mean, they need the virus of partisanship. That's where Wearing a mask. Yes. Social distance. Yes. So the mask is not red and blue. It's, it's about, I mean, the, the, the virus is not red and blue, it's a virus. So, um, look, we just got to call on what Lincoln called our, our higher angels. We've got to lift up uh, the best of, of our traditions. And at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all we've got. I say we. I mean, we in the biggest sense of the word. We should have known that we're tired of the same environment of destiny as Dr. King Court. We should have known that I need my neighbor to cover my health insurance, and if she's uncovered, I'm unprotected. We should have known that before the virus. But as tragic as this virus is, it's tragic in its own terms. So I don't want to minimize that at all, but it's, it's, it's also instructive in the sense that now we have a deadly airborne disease. My neighbor coughs and I potentially get trouble because my neighbors. I think if you think about it, that's a moment for insight. So I, so I need that person to be covered. It's the right thing to do. That's the moral argument. But it's also in light of self-interest. That when, when she's covered, I'm protected. So I need that person to have health care coverage. I need their children to have access to a good quality education so that they can contribute and be productive and prosperous citizens. I need for their grandmother and grandfather to be able to afford prescription drugs and to be able to retire. We're tied together. And so I think over the next four days into the election and afterwards, We've got to keep saying that we're all we've got, Democratic and Republican. I, I know we don't feel that way these days, so there's so much anger, but we're all we've got, there's, there's nowhere to go. And so, you know, I think uh, I will lift up the words of King, by Martin Rodney King, who said, We're stuck here for a while, can't we all get along? And I think in this moment, we've got to go. I don't know if we all can just get along, but I promise to try. I don't think we have a choice, eh? I hope I, 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 I
start talking about voter suppression and voter interference and all of those things, it just sometimes feel like, feels like the system is stacked against us. It has been from really since before the inception of this country. And so I'm trying to believe in that. And so even when I'm like here selfishly, y'all, I'm asking these questions because I need that final push. I believe in it a little bit. Like I've been in these states because I believe in it. I'm holding on to the little bit that's left, but there is some hopelessness, especially because of all these experiences you're to your earlier point. But um, so let me just speak to the voting thing yeah. around voter suppression. There's no question. That you, you're at your voter suppression is real. But I want to say to the folks who are watching this, that's why you must show up. And that may seem counterintuitive. Oh, but it's right. That's why you must show up. And the folks who say my vote doesn't count, I say to them, well, clearly it does because they're, they're doing a whole lot to keep you from voting. So someone has seen your power and they're trying to keep you from exercising. So this is the fight that people like Stacey Abrams and I have been in years here in Georgia. Um, we've been registering hundreds of thousands of voters. She ran for governor. As you lift up. She won. I said it. <laughs> so she ran for governor. And she certainly was running against a man who was both her opponent and the umpire. Yeah. Calling balls and strikes. No question about that. His finger firmly on the scale. The good news is, well, the bad news is, with his finger firmly on the skin, he squeaked by her, but barely, barely. She lost by less than 55,000 votes, 1.4%. The good news is that since 2018, we've registered 800,000 new voters in the state. 49% of them are people of color, and 45% of them are under 30. So we have the coalition. We have many more times the numbers of votes that she lost by. We, we several times, I'm not good at math, that's what I'm saying. Instead of becoming an engineer, I'm just kidding. But, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, we read saying 100,000 votes. So, so voter suppression is not something that necessarily goes away. But the answer to voter suppression is massive voter mobilization because if you mobilize voters, it becomes harder and harder to steal an election. The other side knows it, and that's why they're afraid. That's why Donald Trump will be here on Sunday. Donald Trump is coming to Georgia, y'all, two days before the election, and he's coming to so-called Red Georgia. And uh, Georgia's very much in play, and it's in play because we've been doing the work, so let's keep doing the work for election. As you get to election day, um, what is your your biggest fear, and then what is your biggest hope for election day? Wow, my biggest fear um, that we'll get too comfortable too soon. So show up. I think that's part of the story of 2016. Yeah. There were a lot of folks who assumed that, of course, that can't happen. So my biggest fear is that we won't get too comfortable too soon. My biggest hope is that come Tuesday we are going to see the same kind of passion that we saw this summer in the wake of the tragic killing of our 
Brother George Floyd and Fletch in broad daylight, Paul Feldman, Breonna Taylor, Abad Abbey right here in Georgia, killed by vigilantes who arrogated to themselves the power of law. Uh, Rayshard Hooks, who might be the guys. And in the wake of those deaths, the good news is that maybe because we're all in our houses for weeks and we couldn't turn away so often America does, we saw a multiracial, multigenerational coalition of conscience march out into American streets and say that we can't be this, we're better than this. And um, we, I, I hope that come Tuesday we'll see that that march should stop. The folks who marched in the streets marched right onto the polls in Virginia. Uh, our last question for you is as we get through election day on November 4th, what is your hope on that America uh, turns towards? You just talked about America turning away from as it often does. So if we're to turn over to the and we turn towards problem solving, what is it that's the one thing that you hope America really turns toward? I agree, and uh, I've been saying this for a long time that we've got to redeem the soul of America. I think that behind the big public, public policy debates is a question about the spiritual health of the country. And I don't say this from a sectarian point of view, but whatever your religious tradition. Um, I think the brokenness of our infrastructure is a reflection of the brokenness in the American soul and our politics. Like when, you, when, when you're the wealthiest nation in the world and you allow the streets to crumble the way they have infrastructure to go down, it's like a dysfunctional family that has lost its way in some ways. And so I would like to see us invest in America. I'd like to see us rebuild our roads, our bridges, our tunnels. I'd like to see us have better infrastructure so you and I don't lose our island next time we do this on the road. I'd like to see us build green energy infrastructure, create green energy jobs, invest in America. I think it's a smart thing to do. In the short term, it will create jobs. It's great having to provide relief anyway, provide what good people work. And I think it can position uh, the American economy to lead in the 21st century. Thank you so much for everyone. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Uh, let us know if we can be helpful before Tuesday or after, if necessary. But I believe you got this. Thank you so much. All right. Good. I agree with you. <laughs> Good. For all my children of the light, born in the but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight. Pray. They see God in everything I write. Yeah.